0: Good morning. My name is Sandy Green, and I will be reading scripture from the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, you may be seated. Well, good morning. Oof, extra hour of sleep and that's all we got, all right going to be one of those days we're in a room with no natural light no easily accessible exits no clocks we could be here for a while so we better (laughs) do this together i'm glad everybody could find a seat this morning and um Welcome, welcome to Disciples Church. We are so glad that you're here. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors, and we are uh, delighted, as always, to have you with us in a room that we usually uh, do not meet in, but we are thankful nonetheless for, uh, for our gracious hosts and their uh, making space available to us, uh, even when our, our ordinary space is being used. So glad you found your way here this morning, and if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Well, Thanksgiving is coming up, and I happened to come across an article this week that was particularly geared towards uh, millennials and um, the younger generations, the Generation Y. I'm looking at you young folks. Is it Generation Y? Because I'm no longer part of that generation. I'm I'm a millennial, so now I'm old. I don't know when that happened, but uh, it was geared towards particularly younger readers. And the whole point of this article was to say as you get together with family um, for Thanksgiving, how do you deal with family who has a different political opinion than you do? How are you going to navigate those conversations? Do you avoid the topic altogether? Do you try to find interesting inroads into having some of those conversations? Uh, And the advice that the author essentially gave was just to avoid talking about politics altogether. Now, I don't know how you do that uh, in this current age, and I don't know how you do that considering that we have an election this week in which millions of Americans are going to head their way into the polls, and in particular, I don't know how we would navigate that in my family, because in my family, look, political conversations and sarcasm are our love language. That's how, we, that's how we show each other that we care, and it's what we talk about, and so if we didn't talk about those things, I don't know what else, frankly, we would really talk about when we get together. That's that's such a part and parcel of it. But as everybody heads to the polls these, this week, and as uh, over the next several days, likely as the results of those uh, results of the elections come back, there are going to be things that happen within us emotionally. There are going to be some people who are incredibly pleased and delighted at the outcome. There are going to be a host of people who are disappointed for one reason or another, and there are going to be some people who think that the end of the world has finally arrived. See, politics has a unique Power. It has a unique influence. It has a unique ability to make us feel things deeply, to stir up emotions, to stir up our feelings, and in particular, to stir up anger, to stir up feelings of distrust, of disappointment, of frustration. And the point of that article was that that, that more than in many years past, that is a particularly true temptation for all of us. And the question that I found myself considering as I was reading that article and and ultimately thinking about this idea this last week is I wonder if we feel that passionately about other things, and in particular with this text this morning, I wonder if we feel that passionately about the gospel. And my goal in saying that, by the way, just to, be, just to be square, my goal in saying that is not to guilt trip anybody for caring about the elections, right? Because that can become the temptation is, oh, okay, now I'm getting beaten over the head for caring about what's happening with the elections. That's not my goal at all. But my goal simply is to say, what are the things that trigger us most deeply in our emotions and our spiritual life? What are the things that most activate emotions and a response from us? Because what you find from the example of Paul all throughout the New Testament is that he faces all kinds of incredibly difficult moments and incredibly difficult circumstances, and he handles those things in a really profound and interesting way. He's presented with an opportunity to stop preaching the gospel, and then stop preaching the gospel to maintain his freedom, or to continue proclaiming the gospel and be arrested. And ultimately what he says is, well, you're going to have to arrest me. And then when he's in prison, he's threatened with death, and his answer is, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And later on in his life, we find him facing all sorts of other difficulties. And he, he, he's, he's at this one particular moment visited by what's called a thorn in the flesh. We're not told exactly what that is. Perhaps it was a physical ailment, a spiritual ailment, something going on in his mind or his psyche. We're not exactly told what it was. But what we know is that he poured out his heart before God and he said, God, would you please just remove this thorn from my flesh? And God said, no, the there, there's a purpose in this thorn in the flesh occurring, but my grace is sufficient for you. And it was ultimately the grace given to him by God that allowed Paul to continue forward in his walk and in his life. He seems to handle all of these things in a profoundly mature way. And really in this way that while, while emotional, is not it's not out of control, it's not fiery, it's not passionate, and yet in this text, We find Paul being both fiery and passionate. We find him at his most raw. And the things that he says in this text, particularly as we get later into this book, are so strong that they almost make you blush to repeat them. And we'll get to some of those texts in the coming weeks. But that's because what agitates Paul, more than anything else, more than more than a government that treats him unfairly, more than people who treat him unfairly, what agitates him more than anything else is people who claim the mantle of Christianity and claim to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but who adulterate and co-opt that message that's the thing that gets him fired up that's the thing that gives him this righteous anger in which he's writing this particular letter and why is it that it bothers him to that extent well for Paul the answer is that this is the gospel that had called him this is the gospel that had saved him this was the gospel that had motivated him in his life this is the gospel that he had spent his life proclaiming this is the gospel for which he suffered and now that gospel is being slandered It's being adulterated. It's being added to. And there is nothing for Paul, seemingly, that is so deserving of such a passionate retort. And what Paul is getting at in this text is that when someone claims to be a Christian interested in spreading the gospel but is promoting something other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel of grace, it is deserving of a direct confrontation. And that's what leads Paul to speak the way that he does, beginning in verse 6. Here's what he says. You can see the pastoral heart of Paul. He says, brothers and sisters, I am astonished, shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I mean, Paul at this point in his life is relatively early in his Christian ministry. This area of the world is the first place that he'd gone on his missionary journey. This is likely the first letter that he had written to the churches after leaving them. He'd, but he'd been around long enough to see people drift and desert faith. He'd seen people who proclaimed faith and initially seemed so fired up and on fire for God and And they'd received the message of the gospel. They began to attend the gathering of the church. But over time, for one reason or another, they began to drift. That process wasn't lost on Paul. Certainly, he'd seen it before. But Paul seems to be saying that what is happening in the Galatian church seems different. It seems all of a sudden, it seems very quick, it seems as if these people who had trusted the gospel and found solace in the gospel and hope and meaning in the gospel, who had their lives transformed by the gospel, are now on a dime turning away from it. And Paul says, what I'm seeing in you is shocking to me because you know what the truth is. You've actually seen the truth. You've experienced the truth. You could tell me what the truth is, and now you're abandoning it. And the experience that he has with these Galatian Christians here is reminiscent of the description of the spiritually immature believer that Paul gives in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 where he says this. He says, you're like children. You're tossed to and fro by the waves and the winds and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says it's almost like you're being blown around in the wind. You're just You're just operating at the whim of whatever is going on around you and my guess is that all of us to some extent or another have had experiences with people who are like that or perhaps have been people who are like that where we're just constantly kind of drifting through our spiritual life we're being influenced by this teacher by that book by that spiritual concept by this particular denomination by this particular sect or group and just whatever we find seems to seems to move us in one direction or another. We operate according to the most recent idea that we heard. And I've, heard, I've certainly met people who are very much like that. They can't discern between good teaching and bad teaching, between good doctrine and false doctrine, and they, they have seemingly an inability to give attention to the things that matter the most. They are, in the words of Paul, spiritual infants. There's a lack of maturity, a lack of understanding, a lack of depth and rootedness in their lives. See, spiritual infants, according to Paul, are people who are obsessed with spirituality. They're obsessed with, with religious trends. They're obsessed with arguing the finer points of theology, obsessed with criticizing those who disagree, obsessed with promoting the teacher du jour, but they don't actually know who they are in Christ. So they can parrot back ideas all day, but they have no sense of their own identity in Christ. And Paul's point in making this initial charge to the brothers and sisters in Galatia, these people whom he had been able to lead to the Lord, his point in saying this was not just to show his disbelief at their immaturity, but it's to remind them of what they were originally called to. And look what that message is in verse six. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, in the grace of Christ. And the gospel message that he is going to pound over and over and over again in this text is grace, grace, grace. The reminder that Paul lays out is really the truth that we saw all throughout our previous series in Genesis, that it is God who initiates, that it is God who calls, that it is God who coaxes, that it is God who makes alive. And he makes that statement again here. It is God who called you in the grace of Christ. And our following Christ necessitates that God of his own good pleasure and love first calls us to himself. And what Paul is saying, or at least intimating here, is do you know when people begin to get called away by false doctrine most often? When they forget the necessity of grace. When people feel like they've got it knocked, like they don't need any more help, like they've been given enough information or enough education or enough self-discipline and and by by receiving those things, now I can live a life pleasing to God without grace. And Luther writing about this text says, understand there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christ's righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. In other words, what Luther is saying is there is no happy medium between the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the sacrifice that he gave up in giving himself for us and taking upon himself both the burden and the wrath for our sin. There is no happy medium between what Christ did and what we did in which we find salvation. It is Christ's work alone. And if at any point you try to adulterate the work of Christ by saying, God, let me offer my own good works as a partial substitution, as a way to pay you back, as a way to earn my place in your life, what you have done is you have pulled away the work of Christ and offered your own works in its place. There is no way to offer both to God and have it received. Your standing before God relies only on the work of Christ. As we talked about in the confession of faith, it's that idea that the graces that accompany our salvation are not the things ultimately that provide our salvation. In other words, yes, we, we do good works and we obey God and we try to live in a way that is acceptable to him, in a way that he instructs us to live, but not as a means of earning something from him, only as a means of demonstrating that fruit has, is being born out in our life because of the grace that he has imparted. But understand then what the temptation is for us, because the The false appeal of being able to contribute to our own salvation is unbelievably enticing to us. It's why the false doctrines of certain religions or subsets or cults, whether they're Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or so-called prosperity gospel preachers or faith healers, are so appealing to us. The reason that those things are so appealing to mankind is because they play on the natural human desire to perform and accomplish. If I can live the right way, if I can participate in the right rituals, if I can abstain from enough pleasures, or if I can muster enough faith, I can force God to bless me. I can force his hand to move. I can put God in my debt. I can make him do what I want him to do. I can force him to bless me spiritually and and force him to let me into heaven. I can force him to bless me physically and give me good health or material goods or whatever it is. And each of those examples, the common thread is that their adherents believe that the grace of God is either one, unnecessary, because hey, I'm, I'm showing that I can do this pretty well on my own. Or two, they believe that grace can be received through bartering with God. And if grace could be bartered for, it would no longer be grace. Because grace, by its own definition, is something that is unmerited. You can't earn it. And at the point in which you are trying to earn grace, you are most desperately in need of the grace that you cannot earn. So if you really want to avoid the error of the Galatians... If you want to avoid the thinking that was beginning to call them away, call them away. what do you need to do? And I think the answer is counterintuitive, but follow me on this because I think it'll be helpful. First, if we want to avoid the error of the Galatians, we need to recognize what true spiritual maturity looks like. We need to recognize what true spiritual maturity looks like. So I was thinking about this and talking to my wife about it last night. When we, have, when we have kids, if you have children, one of the things that you do as a parent is you are trying in some way or another to prepare them for life outside of your influence. You're trying to prepare them for an independent life. You're trying to prepare them for for, for self-reliance, you're, you're preparing them to be adults who are no longer whelping pups dependent on you and your provision, right? That's the goal of being a parent. That's one of the objective measures that you use as to whether or not you've been a successful parent. It's one of the things that we try to keep in mind as a parent is how am I going to train this child and prepare them to be an adult, to be self-reliant? And I think often what we do in our spiritual life is we try to apply that same analogy to our relationship with God. So when we think about grace, we think about grace as the entryway into Christianity, that we're entirely dependent on grace and on God's goodness in order to become Christians, but, but then we think that like human parents, what God is asking us to do is leave that grace behind and really figure it out on our own, to no, to no longer be dependent on him, we view maturity spiritually the same way that we view maturity physically, that what it means is self-reliance and ability to care for ourselves and provide for ourselves and find our own way. But when the Bible describes spiritual maturity, it describes something totally opposite of that. That the way that you understand true spiritual maturity is that, it is something, is that you are actually growing in your dependence on God that you are becoming more and more dependent on him, less and less reliant on yourself, that you are more aware of your inability to live the spiritual life apart from dependence on God, and therefore you rely on him all the more. See, the challenging part of the Christian life is that we are learning to give away more of our own independence and more of our own self-reliance because we realize the foolishness of our own wisdom we realize the captivity of our own perceived freedom. See, the truth is we are all offering ourselves up as slaves to something. You're gonna have to serve somebody. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul says it this way, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness." See, the real question that defines your spiritual maturity is who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve yourself? Are you gonna be a slave to the empty promises and momentary pleasures of your own desires? Or are you going to take on the easy yoke and the light burden of a loving God? And recognizing true spiritual maturity leads us to the second counterintuitive reality, which is this, we avoid the error of the Galatians by recognizing our need for God's grace all the more. If we want to avoid the error of the Galatians, we need to recognize our need for God's grace all the more. So one of the more unexpected experiences of my Christian life is that my growth in grace has a direct correlation to an increased recognition of my own sin. My growth in grace is directly correlated to me recognizing the depth of my own sin. So the Bible describes it this way. The Bible describes life before Jesus as living in darkness the separation between darkness and light, that what marks our life prior to the entrance of Christ and prior to his magnificent salvation is that we are in utter darkness. We are unaware of how sinful our lives are. We are unaware of how wicked our own hearts are. It's like living in a dark room that is absolutely cluttered with sin, but we can't see any of it because of the intense darkness that's around us. See, before you knew Jesus, that was your life. You didn't have the light of the gospel. You had no way to see all the sin that was around you. But when God revealed the gospel of grace to you, it was like lighting a match in the middle of that room. Suddenly, there is this small but brilliant light. And all of these big sins that had marked your life and dominated your life and cluttered your life for as long as you can remember that you didn't even realize were there were revealed for the very first time. So as the Holy Spirit begins to reveal those things in your life, you're confessing them, you're turning away from them, you're growing in your faith and your dependence on God, you're understanding more and more who Jesus Christ is, the depth of his love and his compassion and his care and his grace toward you. And as you read the word of God and as you interact with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it's like that, it's like that match is being is is lighting a lantern. The light suddenly intensifies and starts to get into the corners and the nooks and the crannies and the crevices of your life. And now you begin to realize that there are even more sins in your life that needed to be exposed to the light of the gospel. Things that didn't used to bother you at all, you now recognize as being an affront to the character and nature of God. And so as you grow in your understanding and experience of the gospel, you also grow in your desperation for God's grace. As you become more spiritually mature, you recognize that you need God's grace even more, not less. We see this play out in the life of the Apostle Paul. One of the interesting things of getting to watch Paul's life play out throughout the New Testament is is not only the the bits of narrative that we get, for instance, in the book of Acts, where we see him uh, do various things, but also to see kind of this narrative that he gives us of his own life. We see his life play out in patterns through the letters that he writes. And so early on in his apostolic ministry, Paul is writing to the churches and he describes himself, for instance, as the least of all the apostles. He says, if I were to look around at all the apostles around me, their interactions with Jesus Christ, their knowledge of Jesus Christ, their love for Jesus Christ, it's like I'm the least of all of them. And a little bit later in his life, as he continues to grow in his spiritual maturity and know Christ better, it's as if his humility grows alongside of it. And he describes himself later on in his life, not only as the least of all the apostles, but the least of all Christians It's him acknowledging what you and I might acknowledge in our life, which is that if you really know yourself, you ought to be the worst sinner you know. Because you know the depth of your own depravity. You know what goes on in your heart and your mind. And Paul's having that same experience. He goes from, in his own mind, being the least of all the apostles to being the least of all Christians. And towards the end of his life, as he's writing his later letters, he says, there is grace abounding even to me, the chief of sinners the least of all the apostles, to the least of all Christians, and now viewing himself as the chief of sinners, that as his understanding of the gospel grew and his understanding of his own depravity grew, his desire for and appreciation of the grace of God intensified. See, grace isn't merely the pathway to Christianity. Grace is the destination as well. And living in that understanding roots us in humility. It guards our hearts from pride. It allows us to see our self-righteousness and it allows us to recognize false doctrine as an affront to the grace that we most desperately need. See, ultimately what Paul's getting after this morning is how do you avoid the error of the Galatians? How do you not get drawn in by false doctrine? And it's sort of like that old illustration about how you recognize an, uh, counterfeit money. That the way that people recognize counterfeit money isn't by studying all the different ways that one can counterfeit money or studying counterfeit bills. They, they study and handle the real thing so that when the counterfeit comes along, they recognize that this isn't real. And the same thing is true of the gospel. We don't just look at and study the derivations of the gospel to recognize their falsehood. We need to know the gospel, the way that we defined it last week, the miraculous work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us and through his resurrection, chasing lost and dying sinners, rescuing us and bringing us into the family of God. That's how we recognize good doctrine versus false doctrine. And Paul makes this connection for us in verse 7. So look what he says, backing up to verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. Listen to what he says. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, the doctrine that had been promoted by the false teachers had the effect of troubling the Galatian church. One of the ways that we recognize the false gospel is anything that makes you look at your own life and say, well, certainly God can't accept me the way that I am, and certainly his grace isn't enough, therefore I must have to do something for him. If a doctrine has that sort of effect in your heart, it should be an indication, a red flag, that there's a problem because the true gospel always points you to Christ, not to you. And this is why Paul spends so much of his energy calling out the false teachers in the church in such harsh terms rather than calling out the simple Galatians for their gullibility. He has a pastoral compassion for them. He has a love for them. He's not mad at them in this moment. What he is is sad for them, heartbroken, that these people whom he had labored with and loved and cared for and met with and talked to were now being drawn away by people who had motivations other than that of the gospel. And so Paul goes so far as to say, understand that there isn't another gospel. There are not multiple ways to God, and there is nothing outside of the work of Christ that you can offer to make your own way to Christ. And think about, think about the inherent nature of what that means. Think about the word gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. And what he's saying is, apart from Christ, there is no other good news, The good news of the gospel is that everything that is necessary for your eternal salvation, for your absolute forgiveness, for your reception of God's infinite love and adoption, all of it beginning to end is done because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Accomplished once for all. So necessarily any other gospel is not good news. Any other gospel, says Paul, is bondage. Anything else that tries to charade or masquerade itself as the gospel inherently cannot be good. So here's the natural question for us. How do we recognize false doctrine? I was reminded in my own um, mind this week as I was thinking about this question of uh, a story that my mother had told me. She was having a conversation for years um, to a woman that was in her neighborhood who didn't know Jesus but was a very religious person. And so my mother fairly regularly would go over to this woman's house and she would share the gospel with her and she would have conversations and, and they became great friends. And this woman was just steeped in her religious upbringing. And what was hard for my mother in this conversation was that this woman would give lip service to the idea that salvation could be only found in Jesus. And so when my mother would talk about the gospel and say, well, you understand that it's only because of what Jesus did that we find salvation. We don't find it in anything else. This woman would say, well, of course, that's what I believe, absolutely, amen. And she would, she would agree with everything that my mom was saying. But functionally, this woman was depending on all of the rites and the rituals of her church for her salvation. And so one day, my mother was having a conversation with her and said, well, what if you had never been baptized? Or what if you hadn't been confirmed? What if you didn't attend mass regularly? What if you didn't receive communion? Do you think think that God could accept you just because of what Jesus did? And this woman paused and for the first time in her life acknowledged in some way or another that she didn't really think Jesus was enough. See, you and I, we think of false doctrines and false religions. We think, of, we think of religions like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, and certainly they are false religions. But, but understand that a false religion is anything that says Jesus plus. And in many ways, Jesus plus is the most dangerous false doctrine because it contains a kernel of truth. See, most of us probably wouldn't be taken in if a Muslim came to our door and gave us a Koran and began to talk about the way that we were going to find peace and hope through Allah. For most of us, we would recognize that on its face as a false doctrine. We would recognize the issues with it. We would recognize the problems with it. We would identify it immediately as something that is not true, not consistent with God's word, not consistent with the way to salvation through Jesus Christ alone. We would recognize that right away. But Jesus plus... That's very appealing to us. It's appealing to everything about our character and everything who we are. Why? Because we can have good doctrine. We can claim Jesus. We can be respectable Christians and still try to do something to earn our way. And the plus of that Jesus plus may be the teachings of a particular religious sect or it may be the internal religious structure that you've built for yourself in your own mind, your own list of commands that you try to obey to demonstrate your sincerity. But understand that if that's where you are today, the call that's being put to you implicitly is that you ask God to reveal those things to you and root them out God, show me where I'm trying to depend on anything other than you. Show me the folly of trying to build my own ladder to heaven. Show me the silliness of trying to earn what only you can freely give. This is what Luther said about this text when he said, Paul's intent here is to beat down the law and the righteousness that comes by works. And Paul ends this section by saying this in verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be a curse. Now, Paul repeats himself here because he doesn't want the false teachers to miss what he's saying. He says on two separate occasions, if anyone, including the people that are hearing this letter read within the Galatian churches, if anyone preaches something contrary to the gospel you received, understand that inherently what's happening is God himself is applying a spiritual curse to their life. If somehow an angel, Paul says, were to come to you and proclaim something other than the gospel, if I myself were to come to you and preach something other than the gospel that you've already received, you need to ignore it because if anybody preaches a contrary gospel, they'll be cursed, spiritually rejected by God. One of the things that's very popular in our culture right now, particularly of people of my generation, uh, is this idea of deconstructing our faith. So if you're on social media at all, you may, you may see stuff like this pop up where people who've grown up within the church begin to deconstruct their faith and they try to figure out what they believe and what they actually don't believe. They try, to, they try to kind of go back to a pre-religious mindset and work through everything that they believe or don't believe. And ultimately, many of the people who kind of go through this process end up walking away from the faith. And there have been notable people, people whose names you might recognize, who've gone through this process and who either as former pastors or Christian authors or people of great import and influence, have ended up abandoning the faith that they once held and proclaimed. And the question that we asked them was, well, how does that happen? What's going on in the lives of these people where they begin to abandon what they once proclaimed? And the reality is that in some sense or another, what it proves is that the gospel they proclaimed never made its way into their heart. They had a sense of a God. They had a sense of of the the reality of Scripture. They maybe even received bits and pieces of it, but... It never took root in their heart in a way that began to transform their lives. And what I appreciate about what Paul is saying here is he's saying, Look, understand that the problem is not just other people. The problem could even be me. If I were to come back and proclaim a message to you that is not the gospel, says Paul, you need to ignore me. Why? Because this is truth, it's reality. And if you look at cults over time, whether they're small and forgettable or as influential as the Mormon church, they often have this same origin story. Some angel appears to a man, gives him another testament, a word, an instruction. That individual presumes that the gospel contained in the 66 books of the Bible are insufficient actually knowing God and in people's willingness to receive and promote that false word, they are drawn away from the gospel entirely, drawn into something else and unfortunately end up drawing away countless others with them. So don't abandon this gospel, says Paul. And he ends by saying this, for am I now seeking the approval of man? Am I trying to get the approval of these false teachers and the Judaizers and the Pharisees? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, I'm not concerned about pleasing anyone. I'm not concerned about the religious leaders or the influential communicators or the educated scholars. And where so many of these Galatian Christians were getting tripped up is that they began to be impressed with the resumes of these false teachers. And so they're saying to each other, I mean, did you see where this guy got his degree? Have you seen all the books that he's written? Have you heard what an effective communicator he is? Certainly this person must have the truth. And Paul is saying, look, I did all that. And I've got the resume and I've got the degrees and I come from the right family and I have the skill set. And it was when I thought that I had it all that God showed me that I had nothing without Christ. And Paul says, that's why I'm his servant now because I'm infinitely more satisfied and infinitely more joyful and infinitely more complete in being his servant than I ever was in merely having the admiration of other men. It was the reason that Paul was willing to suffer persecution for what he preached. It was the reason he was willing to endure the hatred of his own countrymen whom he so deeply loved, as he talks about in Romans chapter nine. And so the question for all of us is when the decision is put to us, are we going to choose the approval of men or the approval of God? Are we willing to bend on the gospel? Are we willing to add to it? Are we willing to stay silent when the gospel is adulterated, when it's co-opted for a message other than what was originally intended? Are we devoting ourselves to the gospel, both personally in our time in the word, our time spent with God, our time spent with brothers and sisters, our time gathered as the church corporately? Are we devoted to the gospel? Are we teaching it to our children? Are we reminding ourselves of it so that when the false things come along, we can actually recognize them as the false doctrines that they are? Or are we swept about with every wind of doctrine? Are we willing to stand for the gospel? not only when the gospel is adulterated and co-opted by other people who claim the mantle of Christianity, but also when a culture at large who hates this message comes along and reminds us of how unpopular it is. Are we going to choose the approval of men or the approval of God? Are we gonna be drawn in by the claims of societal progress proffered by cultural, cultural elites and experts and scholars? Or are we going to be willing to receive the criticism and potentially persecution for the cause of being servants of Christ? And the wonder of the book of Galatians and the wonder of this text is that Paul is letting us know some 2000 years later that we are not the first to be put in this position. He's letting us know that he has tasted both the approval of others and the joys of Christ and that Christ is infinitely better. It's the invitation that he extends to each of us today. And the invitation that he's extending to you is if you don't know the joy of Christ, if what you've found Christ to be is a taskmaster, cruel, heartless, unkind, critical, judgmental, you have not met the real Christ. The Christ who says, come to me, ye heavy laden, and rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's easy and it's light because Christ already carried it for you. Because he's calling you to live a life in which his life is being lived out in you. And in that life, there is absolute joy and confidence, even in the midst of unbelievable hardship. So brothers and sisters, rest yourself in that today. Find your hope in the only one who is worthy of placing it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the message of the book of Galatians. We thank you for the way that it presses against us in every way, it presses against us culturally and what we hear around us and the criticism, the exclusivity of the message of the gospel. It presses against us naturally to the extent that we're drawn to pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and impressing others with our behavior. It it presses against us in our own mindset of religiosity where we just think it's too simple and too easy to believe that you've already done everything that is necessary for our salvation. It presses against us, but it presses us, God, into something that is infinitely more comfortable, into something that fits us, Not comfortable in the eyes of the world and the surrounding culture, but comfortable in the sense that it actually fits the identity that we've been given. God, would we find our everything in you, our hope, our value, our worth, our joy, our meaning in this life and the next. And so God, to the extent that we are relying on anything other than you, or to the extent that we are relying on Jesus plus anything else, would you root out and rip away those other things for the sake of our ultimate joy in you and your ultimate glory. And it's in the beautiful name of our Savior that we pray. Amen.